Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other episode, and then you shop as you normally would. Today, we're discussing our experience with the D&D Mass Combat Rules in our live playtest, which we dubbed the Battle System Brawl. If you missed the Battle System Brawl livestream, we have videos of the event on YouTube and a podcast version, which you can check out in the show notes for this episode over at thetomeshow.com, where you can also find the Unearthed Arcana article, which provides the mass combat rules we used for this battle. I encourage all of you to check those out, but this conversation should make sense even if you haven't fully seen the battle. Let's meet the panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Describe your character or role in the Battle System Brawl. Rudy Basso, say hello. Hello. Uh, I played LL Cool W, who was a um, bard warforged, hence W, get it? Very original. Uh, I chose bard specifically so I could inspire my troops with the charisma bonuses that I got, because that was my goal, is to get advantage on every single turn. I controlled a small skirmisher unit, which I think had four stands, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was on one of the three units on the bottom flank. Excellent. Yes, it's always good to have a Warforged Bard who can do dubstep at any at oh, that's right, drop yeah. of a hat. The most important thing you need in your group. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, Alex Basso was there with us as well. Alex Basso, describe your character and role in the Battle System Brawl. So I was playing Sworn Battleborn, a Goliath War Domain Cleric, and I decided this time to try kind of an experimental build, maybe a little unfair, built it direct, you know, for this brawl, uh, where I mostly for just ignored wisdom. I think I had a 10 or 12 in wisdom and took as many aura spells or spells that didn't have modifiers uh, and instead bumped up charisma and strength so I could, you know, be an effective leader. Um, and again, I was also on the what south-slash-west flank with, uh, with Rudy. Excellent. And of course, uh, the casualty of war, Allison Rossi. Uh, describe your character and role in the battle system brawl. So I was uh, I was Sultara Stone Shield, and I was an Earth Ganazi Barbarian. Um, I was commanding uh, three Dwarven Knights that were mounted fighters. Um, since they thought I would be kind of the toughest one, I was sent by myself out to the east to protect a bridge, which was kind of one of our objectives to protect and not let it get destroyed. Um, and as James said, I was the only player character casualty, the only commander that died. Um, so so that was uh, my main task, protecting that bridge, which I did quite well, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. You did very well. Uh, with your dying breath, some might yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, of course, I rounded out the forces of Earth here. I played uh, Crooksworth Steelbelly. Uh, he was a Sferfnablin wizard. Um, who led a skirmisher battalion of uh, a hodgepodge of uh, stands. Um, so that was uh, that was the Earth side. And then, of course, John Fisher, why don't you describe your role in the battle system brawl since you had more work than anybody else in this? So I was the DM, and I controlled the forces of not Earth, the air, water, and uh, fire genasi, as well as some stands of Aarakocra. Uh, spread out 
In particular, I created four very deep characters uh, that were all monks with very high charisma in order to lead my troops that were slightly lower level than the PCs. But that that was me. And they all had names that were generated by Roll20, so I do not remember them. Nice, nice. Uh, well, why don't I give a quick overview of the Unearthed Arcana rules? There are way, way more rules than this, and we're definitely going to get into them as the conversation dictates. But let's cover the basics so people sort of know what we're talking about. Most minis represent a stand, and uh, one stand is ten creatures of a given type of character. So ten human thugs, ten elven druids, whatever it may be. Stands are then organized into units, and units act as one on the same turn as initiative. They move all at the same time, and they must take the same action, uh, which is to attack, unless that action is casting a spell, because some stands can cast spells and others can't, and that's where things really get complicated, and we'll get into that later. Uh, PCs, NPCs, and special monsters are considered solo creatures, which act on their own, but can join stands and units, and even become the leader of a unit to provide special bonuses and things to that unit. Uh, everything happens simultaneously, so a round, instead of being the normal six seconds, is actually one minute. So if you kill a unit, but it hasn't acted yet in that round, it still gets to act, because everything is considered to be acting simultaneously at that moment. Uh, at the end of a round, um, morale checks are made to see if any units break and disperse, and uh, victory points are awarded. The first side to score 10 victory points wins, and there are different conditions for winning. Uh, the other thing is that this is kind of impossible without a battle map. So again, if you are not uh, familiar with the Battle System Brawl and you want to go check it out, I recommend you check out the videos on YouTube and not necessarily the podcast, because it's a lot easier to understand if you visually see what's going on. Uh, and we should also mention that we were using the races from the Elemental Evil Player Companion and the Warforged from another Unearthed Arcana Eberron article. Uh, you can find links to all of those things over at thetomeshow.com. So, John, why don't you describe the basic setup that you had uh, planned for this battle for us? Who was fighting who, and how were you awarding victory points? Just a basic overview. We don't need to get into super specifics. Okay, so the basic overview of the story, really simple two-sentence overview was the PCs and their allies were defending a position where uh, there were, had been a drought. So there was, as droughts tend to happen, there, there was not enough water to go around. And uh, the forces that I was controlling were all of the, uh, you know, air and fire and water, Genasi and, uh, and Air Cobra. They were uh, an alliance of nearby settlements that needed to get the water that the PCs had. So that was the story summary. As far as the tactic summary, we had a keep that the PCs were in that was worth three victory points. We had a bridge that if my guys got across it, was worth two. If they destroyed that bridge, it was also worth two. And then there was some farmland that the PCs were protecting that if my characters destroyed it, was worth three. And then uh, you also earn victory points whenever a unit is broken. When you get to 10 victory points, your side wins, no matter if there are other characters or stands on the other side left or not. 
Yeah, or even if there are other objectives left to be fulfilled. As long as you get 10, you win. We had a ton of units, like over 40 different stands moving around and everything. Uh, this system, as it stands right now, and granted, this is a playtest version. This isn't the final, final document. Works great if you have very simple units who are all kind of the same who don't have bonus actions and don't have spells. To me, that's kind of a little disappointing because that kind of would be how a mass combat would work without these rules. Like, those are the conditions under which a mass combat would function best without any of the the rules, just using normal D&D non-mass combat rules. Um, but it does seem to perhaps speed things up if those are your conditions that things are simple. No bonus actions, no spells. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that when when you and I were discussing doing this, I kind of wanted to test because I, I saw in the rules that didn't require that the units be made up of the same type mm -hmm. of stand. So I purposely tried to mix it up, at least on my side, a little bit uh, to see how that would work. And uh, yeah, it turns out it slowed things way down. <laughs> and I apologize for thinking that, but it was a play test and that was kind of the point, right? So. Yeah. Oh, and I'm I'm so glad we did it that way because I think uh, I think it was more fun that way. So why don't we why don't we talk about uh, that for a little bit? The the different unit makeups. Um, there are skirmisher units and there are regiment units. And skirmisher units can run all over the battlefield. They can be a little bit more spread out. They can pass through friendly spaces. Uh, regiments have all of these different configurations they can enter. It takes their action to enter a new one, and they don't move as fast, they move at half speed, and they need to be more tightly compact. They can't move through friendly spaces the way skirmishers can. But the advantage is supposedly that they have all of these configurations that they can use. All of the regiment's units that we had never got out of March configuration. What were you disappointed in, and what did you really like about the different unit configurations? And Rudy Basso, let's start with you. I think my biggest issue going in uh, was that I didn't quite understand why not to make a skirmish unit if I had a solo attached. The main stance or configuration that appealed to me most, it allowed the regiment soldiers an advantage. But if you already have a solo attached to that, you can intimidate or inspire them and give them an advantage. So unless you have a group of units without a solo unit attached, I see no reason whatsoever to switch and make a regiment. I think everybody should be skirmishers because the added advantage of being able to move a unit away is huge. And the fact that it takes a whole turn to change configurations is really debilitating in a fight. Um, and half speed is also a huge disadvantage. Mobility is really important, especially when your units are, are dying or you've lost several stands and you want to get out of there. And if you're stuck moving at half speed because you were in a better uh, configuration, like you're screwed. They're going to catch you and they're going to kill you and there's not much you can do. Alex Basso, you know, before this uh, battle system brawl, you believed in the power of the regiment, or at least you wanted to, right? You wanted them to be cool yes. and awesome. Uh, you led a regiment into battle. Uh, what was your experience? Yeah, they were not cool and awesome. Uh, I mean, I, as you said, I was in marching from the beginning. I never uh, switched out. And the reason is, you know, 
taking a turn, I just I, there was no opportunity to do that. I had to be in the fight every turn. Uh, so if I were to just take one turn to switch stances, like we probably would have lost that battle. I think it, the one thing is it, it will really depend on the situation. Like I can see, yeah, there's some battle setups where regiments could be useful, but in anything that requires mobility um, or just like a you know an objective that you need to get to that's a top priority and you could lose if you ignore it. It's just too much, uh, you know, to go half speed. That's too much of a negative. You really can't ignore that. Because I had to move, you know, across the entire battlefield with my regiment. And if I wasn't marching, I never would have gotten there. Um, so it was really disappointing um, that I wasn't able to utilize any of the other uh, formations. It's a play test. They can tune it a little bit. I think they, they can't make it cost a whole action. That's mm-hmm. just... That's too much of a penalty. Sure, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is that this is a single point of data, right? Uh, I have to commend John. He designed an extremely balanced, massive encounter. Uh, (laughs) I was actually trying to completely destroy you guys. (laughs) It was down to the wire. In the very beginning, you did come close, though, getting all those good initiative rolls. Allison, what did you think? You ran a, a skirmisher unit. Uh, do you think you would have been hampered if you had to keep all of your guys uh, closely packed together and everything? Uh, do you think it would have made a, a difference at all for you if you were in a regiment versus a skirmisher? Well, first I want to say that I completely agree with what Rudy and Alex said. Like They brought up a lot of good points that I myself wanted to bring up. Yes, I think that would have really hurt me, especially because I was by myself uh, you know, defending this bridge. Um, just having to have your movement or anything like that could be a serious real it it could end the battle really so it was just kind of painful being by myself and having kind of some boundaries to play within on my own over there as even as as a skirmisher john i'm interested to hear your opinion about this because of course you are the person who had both regiments and skirmishers under your control so when we started the battle I think one of my regiments in my head was in the help configuration and the rest were in March. And then that regiment had a leader attached who passed their, the, the intimidation or persuasion check to give the entire unit advantage. And I thought, well, okay, I guess that's March. You know, I never changed it again because why? I mean, it's basically what, what Rudy said, really. You know, an action is too costly to change the configuration. And if you've got a solo, there's really not a lot of point to it in the first place. That, that was pretty much it. Now, as far as uh, when I was like choosing which units would be regiments and which would be skirmishers, I was basically going with, you know, I plan to have this unit try and do this. And I plan to have this unit try and do this. And I based type of unit it would be on that. And um, it turned out the only unit that really would have benefited from being uh, a regiment, maybe, because there was no solo attached, it would have been stupid to make them a regiment because they would have been far, far less useful. I have to agree uh, that the the options were pretty limited uh, regiment. It just seemed like a, a false choice. Man, without like a massive choke point and people just being backed up and having nothing to do other than reconfigure, I can't imagine many scenarios where someone would want to take a whole action to do that. Initiative really matters in this. Uh, John, you rolled super high initiative, and so you had four people going at once. Uh, And we all thought, wow, what a major advantage this was going to be. But what would you say the case actually was? The the extremely high initiative that I had ended up killing me. I think if I had had low initiative, 
uh, I honestly, it, it would have gone a completely different way. It, I mean, it really did give the defenders a huge advantage to be going last because it's not first come first serve like in a regular battle because each turn is a minute. Every unit gets to go whether they are would be considered dead or not in a regular encounter. And that really, uh, it really changed the way, you know, th- things would go because I went first and then if anyone was dead, they used their one or two cleric or I guess maybe a paladin unit or a bard unit to heal and then my uh, my side's actions were essentially uh, completely irrelevant it was very surprising and when i was listening to the podcast version i thought because I, I think I, I rolled really high to start and i was really happy and i and i said oh you fool oh you fool just wait just wait 10 minutes oh child <laughs> well and and what's so interesting about that is right because everything happens simultaneously creatures who die don't die until the end of the round so they have a chance to be healed but like you said if you've if all of your units have already acted and then the other side goes that your guys who die have already acted so they don't get an extra turn and they don't get friends to heal them or to heal themselves or anything because they've already gone so they still die at the end of the turn whereas the guys that you killed at the beginning of the turn have a chance to heal and are still alive. Yeah, I think the best example is in the very first round, John moved some of his, his, one of his units forward and killed two of my stands. Uh-huh. Then on my turn, because they were fighters, they used second wind, got health back, then attacked him, did damage. Then, because they're fighters, they had action surge, attacked again, and pretty much wiped out that entire unit. <laughs> what <laughs> like the entire time i was thinking this can't be right can it but that's how it goes basically anytime there was time involved in in any attack or any like spells that happened a lot right uh, we discussed before we had started like how spells would work and it was good that we did because um even having discussed it there were times where it was like okay this spell is supposed to, it's first of all everything's happening simultaneously so am i being affected right away or do i wait until the next turn oh but the spell only lasts a minute so the next turn a minute's gone by i don't know what to do and it's never really spelled out in the rules and i you know i know that there's the rulings not rules philosophy with 5e but it really needed to be there because there's so many spells or conditions in the game where like rudy's characters were dead and then they could just do action action surge but if they were in a regular battle and they were knocked out they wouldn't be able to do that so it doesn't it doesn't really jive with the way the, the rules normally work. We built a lot of uh, NPCs and PCs and stuff from scratch using class levels. And I do think things like bonus actions, a lot of monsters in the monster manual don't have a bonus action that lets them heal themselves. So maybe they're not taking all of those things into account that, yeah, it would be fine for a PC. You don't really care. They're super heroic. You kind of want them to live to do that. But when a bunch of stands are able to do that, is that more of a problem? And the other thing is, you're right, those simultaneous one-minute things like sleep or uh, barbarian raging or that kind of thing, how does all of that work if it's happening simultaneously? Does damage done to the barbarian before it raged in this round, th- then like, is does that actually get 
damage reduction on it? Like, is that damage reduced? Did it have resistance to it beforehand? Because it, you know, because it was raging technically simultaneously at the same time, does it last until its next turn? Is that when the minute ends? Does it end at the end of the round? Same thing for sleep, that kind of well, thing. Well, you just asked all the questions I actually wanted to bring up about the <laughs> yeah. barbarian rage because I was like, wait, this is almost completely useless now because it's for a minute, but how does this minute work? Because it's one turn now, so what do I do? Do I bother? I mean, it's a bonus action, but could I do something better with my bonus action than go into a rage? So I think I used, like, one rage instead of the three I had because I just didn't really know how it worked, and it seemed almost a waste of my time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about those, uh, you know, the confusion of initiative and the simultaneous actions. Uh, what did you think, Alex? Were there, was there anything there that was confusing for you about initiative and simultaneous actions? Uh, I mean, there were definitely some spells of mine that the whole minute thing definitely, it, it threw off. And, I, and I, I also was controlling barbarians, and I pretty much tried to avoid raging. Um, and when it comes to the death, you know, I feel like the way to fix it is just if something goes beneath zero in a turn, they should just be dead at the end of it. Like no way to heal them back. Cause that really did feel, uh, you know, abusive even. Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, I, I mean, all of us pretty much had a cleric stands. I was a healer and we had so much healing. So everyone really had two to three lives. Oh, did we now? Huh? Uh, except for the <laughs> whole to all right, all right. You know, we didn't, it wasn't the best planning, but over on the left side, we had tons of healing. Or just too much healing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, that's something they need to expand on. Uh, you know, the specific durations, spells that hit that one minute, and uh, decide whether they last two turns or just one. I think the easiest fix for the problem with death is just, if you if your character, if your stand is killed, they maybe they can take their action, because everything's simultaneous, but they can't, heal unless they first do all of their death saving throws mm -hmm. maybe that's the thing that should be done yeah but if you bring death saving throws into every stand yeah you're right yeah i, I think just, uh, i think just normal <laughs> stands if they go to zero they're gonna die at the end of the round I yeah, think you're right. about negative half health i think that's better mm -hmm. the amount of damage they take gets to negative half health then they should Maybe what you need to do is some sort of version of the speed factor initiative, which is before the round starts, everyone declares what they're going to do. And you can't change that. So if you haven't said the cleric is going to heal these people, then the cleric can't heal those people until the next round. Um, that's what second edition initiative used to be. And there's a variant of it for fifth edition D&D. And I think that might actually make more sense uh, for this mass combat rules. I don't like to use it at the table because it's a little, you know, it's a little confusing and it can get bogged down and everything uh, in normal D&D. But for this, it kind of makes sense that your, your clerics, 10 clerics aren't able to completely change what they were about to do a minute ago on a dime and run over and heal some dudes. I don't quite understand it. Does everyone write down what they're going to do? And everyone says what they're going to do, and that determines your initiative modifier. So, like, attacking with a certain weapon, like, if it's a small, fast weapon, you have a higher modifier. If it's a big, slow weapon, you have a lower modifier. Uh, casting a spell, the higher the level the spell is, the slower you are to cast it. So the bigger penalty you take to your initiative roll. Um, it's kind of like that. So everybody has to declare, including the DM's people, before they go what they're going to do. Um, so everybody knows what everybody's going to do. 
but you don't know the outcome of those actions. You might miss, you might critical hit, which would change things, you know. I don't know that it's perfect, but it would be an interesting thing to try. Along the lines of simultaneous actions and each round being a minute, let's talk about death saving throws. Allison, why don't you describe what happened when your PC went down and you had to roll death saving throws? Do I have to? I mean, I rolled really bad. It was really painful uh, to die first to to be taking these turns and all of a sudden I'm down and I'm the first one down. Um, the death saving throws, uh, I think I had two passes and a fail and it was kind of up to what I rolled until, you know, if I would die or not. And then I failed one more time. Um, being taken out kind of sucked because my main character was, you know, Soltara was taken out, but I still had the Dwarven Knights to, to command. So that could have been worse. I could have had nothing, but it was kind of sad once they all died too. And you had to roll 10 death saving throws at once. Yeah, it was it was a lot of them. It definitely increases the lethality of things uh, as you're laying there, you know? It made it <laughs> quite difficult. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, we can get over to you in between these death saving throws and try to save you. Um, Exactly. I mean, being there by myself on the other side of the bridge, it was like, someone help. I, I remember, I think I said at some point, you know, oh, someone help, I'm dying, I'm at nine health. And then all of a sudden, I was basically dead. And then I died. Yeah, that was not my finest moment. Yeah, And Rudy, that actually brings me to something that I know we were chatting about during the brawl. There was really no good way to, uh, to disengage. <laughs> Um, because we were held up by like a single stand of a unit was left and the unit could not move away from, uh, this guy because of the way the rules were written, uh, and try to get to Allison to help her. Yeah. It was really frustrating that we were stuck in combat until the opposing unit was either broken or destroyed. I wanted to help. We wanted to help. But we couldn't because the rules... The thought was there. <laughs> the rules made us stay and fight. Which makes sense from a battle standpoint, I suppose. I think it makes sense. It was just poor tactical planning. We should have had a reserve unit, guys. Come but maybe on. if you had, like, uh, overwhelming majority on numbers on the enemy or double the amount, then you should be able to effectively disengage or something. Yeah, maybe maybe one uh, one stand can only tie one stand. Yes, exactly. So if I have three to their two, then I, maybe I have to roll to get away, but I still have the opportunity or the chance to get away. Well, let's. Why don't we talk a little bit about breaking units and things? Um, so once a unit is reduced to uh, less than half of the stands that it had at the start of the battle, it needs to make a morale check at the end of the round. And this morale check is, uh, depending on what type of unit it is, uh, pretty easy. Uh, it's a DC 10 wisdom check. And if it fails, the unit breaks, which means the only action it can take is to run away. A leader can join to the rest of that unit and try to calm it down. When a unit starts to get really small, like it's only one or two stands, they're not allowed to go join a new unit. That seemed hard for me because essentially a unit can become isolated if it's down to one stand. Uh, and Which when you're almost means certain death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, when you're isolated, everything has advantage to hit you and does double damage, and you have disadvantage. Hey, I'm running by allies, but they're not going to help me out. I can't absorb into this other unit, or, or take an a they can't take an action to let me join, or. There's no sort of rule for that. So I'd like to see something like that. 
Uh, what did you guys think of the morale checks and the breaking and everything? Uh, let's start with you, Alex. Uh, I liked it. I mean, it's just an, a nice way to, you know, when you're killing or just like end a battle with another unit, um, you know, beating up. I, it'd be really annoying if you had to fight to the last man with every single battle. Um, I mean, the DC or Wisdom 10 is really, really low. Uh, I mean, I think I almost broke at the end, but, you know, easily passed that evil with my crappy wisdom. So maybe that should be increased or... I mean, I know you can break over and over again. So if you say have a, uh, a unit of eight stands, when you go to four, you'll break. And then uh, if you pass that check, you'll break again at two. So maybe it should increase uh, the, the DC check, you know, 10 the first time, 15 the second time. But I think it's really necessary to just end the battle. Because without that, we would have probably gone another hour or so in a four-hour <laughs> battle brawl. It got a little bit silly when I had, I think I, I ended up passing the that, that saving throw almost every time mm-hmm. um, because uh, what, what ended up happening was I would have one stand left and it was my healing unit stand. Uh, so it had high wisdom. So it made that saving throw almost guaranteed. Um, <laughs> but then it couldn't do really anything because it was one like level one stand against, you know, Rudy's entire unit, for instance, like there was just no, it, it didn't really make sense. Like there, there, I don't know how to do it in a simple way. Um, but there were times where a sizable unit would break because it started with so many stands in it. And then there were other times where we'd have a unit where it was completely destroyed except for one stand and then it, it stuck around. Yeah, there, there, there needs to be something in there. I, I don't know what, so I guess I'm kind of not being very helpful, but yeah, there, there needs to be something in there to, to take that into account. Sure, and that one stand is what prevented us from getting over to Allison to help her. It would be cool to see rules where you could like split up a unit or or make a massive unit out of all your stuff and then split it up uh, as you went into battle. That would actually be kind of cool. Uh, what did you think about all of this, Allison? The uh, the morale and breaking rules and everything. So I I generally like them. I well I think that a DC ten morale check is relatively low. As someone who doesn't always roll very high, I think it was also <laughs> kind of nice. Um, I actually typed up a quote when I was watching through it again, and this was me talking to John. Uh, he rolled another crit on me. I, he rolled a ton on me when we were playing, and I was like, "Stop critting me!" And he's like, "I'm not critting you this time. I'm critting those dwarves." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, they're my people, though. I'm commanding them." <laughs> so you know, as someone who doesn't always roll the highest, seeing as you know I failed enough of my death saving throws that I died, I I like the DC ten, <laughs> um, and I like the morale checks, and I like that you could kind of a uh, spur your troops as well that was kind of nice i i know i did mine through intimidation so i don't know i think they were nice little touches and while they might not be the best i think they they generally work well enough to to keep them as they are sometimes you win sometimes you lose sometimes breaking units is a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing um other times they cause the death of one of the pcs kind of inadvertently so (laughs) yeah yeah for sure well and maybe that's not so inadvertent maybe wizards is looking for wrinkles like that i'm I'm not really sure rudy basso what did you think of morale rules i think they should be more difficult sorry allison or you know what maybe it should should (laughs) scale i like alex's idea of subsequent rules need to be more difficult because it works atmospherically as more and more of your allies are being cut down around you, you're more likely to be scared and just run off. So 
Um, maybe, yeah, if there were just more morale checks, mm-hmm. it would be better. Uh, more frequent morale checks. Maybe it would be like half by third by quarter. I don't know. I, I would like to see more more morale checks. <laughs> more more it because it's a thing that is so different than standard D and D too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a unique, massive army kind of thing that I'd like to see it be a major mechanic. You know, there's one thing that I noticed, uh, John, which was you had a lot of solo monks uh, as the leader of your units. And I thought that was great. The monks, for me, were a great example of where things start to break down uh, and where maybe you need a little more clarification because certainly there may not always be an NPC monk, but a lot of players play monks and that kind of thing. Uh, So monks have key points uh, that they can spend to gain extra attacks and that sort of thing. Um, And you had your monks spending key points to to use those abilities when they attacked. Should they have actually, since it took a minute for them to do that, should they have had to spend extra key points to make those attacks, those extra attacks? Like, they weren't doing that just once. They were doing it ten times, or were they doing it five times? Who knows? Uh, Should they have actually had to spend more key, in your opinion, to use abilities like that? Uh, They don't in the rules as written. Uh, well, I would say thematically, yes, but if, if they couldn't, like any, anything where, you know, you have a power that you can only use once with a short rest or a limited number of times, you know, in a day, mm-hmm. uh, it would just become completely useless. But at the same time, like, that's kind of how spells work. Like, if the monks were casting spells instead of, like, doing magical effects, they couldn't have done a lot of the things that they did, maybe. I, it's, it's tough to say, but... Because I, I can't remember the exact actions that they took. I think most of them were area effect things. But yeah, no, I, I completely see where you're coming from on that. Like, oh, yeah. well, and and I anything think- that has a limited number of uses, it's just like the rage. It's like maybe just maybe those powers just need to, you know, if you got a character that relies heavily on those powers, just go home because it's not it's not well established in the rules. I just did it rules as written. You know, we we had to we had to move oh, yeah. along. Uh, I thought that at the time. I was like, this doesn't really make sense. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I got to do it. Well, and for me, the spells, you brought up spellcasting. They have such specific rules about spells that if you are a solo who is attacking a stand, that you have to do, your spell either needs to cover a certain amount of area to affect that stand, or it needs to affect a certain number of creatures within that stand in order for it to have any kind of effect. Whereas a monk's, uh, you know, stunning strike ability, it doesn't say that. Maybe the monk should really be spending more, like, they should include something there that if a monk uh, has an ability that doesn't affect, you know, only affects one target it's attacking, that then that ability can't be used against the stand, or it needs to spend, uh, you know, five times the number of key points it would normally use, that kind of thing, you know? Right, right. Uh, Because they have those for spells, and it seems like they would probably need to spell them out for things like key points. And it, and it, and it really doesn't need to be specific because some of the monk abilities are very spell-like. So you could just say, oh, well, there, there are enough like spells to just treat them like spells. But there are other things that monks do that are not spells. The only other thing that I want to bring up in my observations, and then let's go around the table and talk about what we liked and didn't like, is reach weapons. 
Uh, Reach weapons were super powerful, uh, and we on the good guy's side outfitted pretty much all of our stands with them. Um, You know, reach weapons allow you to make an extra attack uh, because they sort of represent a stand's ability to get more weapons and attacks and stuff in there. Uh, Lances themselves are also super powerful um, because, you know, the scale of the map you're on is bigger, uh, so technically... Uh, you were never adjacent when attacking with a lance, uh, so you always got that benefit and that high damage from the lance, which was uh, really cool. Did you guys think that reach weapons were overpowered? Uh, and let's start with you, Rudy. Uh, yeah, they're overpowered. Yeah, I mean, well, spearmen are a big part of mass combat, I would assume, with uh, melee weapons. Mm-hmm. So maybe it makes sense from a thematic point of view. If you're well-trained with a spear, you'll poke somebody twice, right? or they could hit you or something. Maybe it makes sense to Mike Marles. Uh, what did you think, Alex? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it may make sense from a thematic or warfare point of view, but it certainly doesn't make sense from a fun point of view. Uh, <laughs> so I would ditch that. It's just, you know, Spears, it's like it's the correct choice. Like, what did you outfit your guys up? Spears, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> anything else, you're not, you're not doing your job. <laughs> failing at being a commander. Uh, Allison, your units were the ones using those sweet, sweet lances. What did you think? Again, by myself, they were super, super helpful because I was fighting so many on my own. Um, I When I realized that I got two attacks with them, I was just like, this is the best thing ever. I wouldn't change it. However, obviously, when the tables are turned, I'm just like, I hate this. This is the worst rule ever. They're getting two attacks on me every turn. In general, I I think it makes sense. Again, if you're in battle, you're going to be outfitting your people with very useful weapons. So I like the idea that you get two attacks with them. Um, I also like the fact that I could throw my hand axes. That was really nice as well. It helped me stay relevant to the battle. Uh, John, why don't you talk about reach weapons a little bit? You didn't seem to have too many people outfitted with them, but our people were mostly outfitted with throwing weapons and you had ranged weapons. You had a lot of long bows and short bows and that kind of thing. Uh, And that certainly seemed to give you an advantage in battle. Uh, So talk about the difference between reach weapons versus your long range weapons. Yeah. I mean, I I did kind of do that on purpose um, because we were starting with such a large field of battle. Like to me, the purpose of mass combat rules is to have a large field of battle. If you're doing them in a hallway, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so I, I did know the reach weapons were going to get a lot of use. Um, and the main reason I didn't, whenever I had a unit that didn't have a, a reach weapon, it was, it was mainly because I thought they would be using their bow and arrow most of the time. And I was mostly right about that. Um, because I had at the beginning of the battle, I had units that could attack you guys that, you guys could not return fire. But I don't think the reach weapons are any more overpowered than, than a longbow in this scenario, certainly. Um, they they did help you guys quite a bit, but I, I, I think the only thing they're overpowered against is sword and shield, uh, which kind of doesn't make sense to use a sword and shield in this scenario anyway. But what I did find interesting is uh, normally a reach weapon is two-handed. The justification that Merles gave in the battle system rules for how reach weapons work is a Greek phalanx. And in a Greek phalanx, they have pikes and shields, which are not an option in D&D. <laughs> uh, so that was interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, why don't we go around the table right now and talk about the things that we really liked and the things that we really disliked. Uh, and we will start with my man, John Fisher. 
Uh, I really liked Aarakocra flying. Uh, but I tried, I wanted that to be like a fun, you guys were just scraping by and then the Aarakocra came in and was like, oh no, we have to try even harder now. But it really turned into, uh, I needed to bring the Aarakocra out because otherwise I was going to get completely destroyed. <laughs> um, uh, which I, I didn't really expect. But uh, that and ranged weapons were definitely my favorite thing and, and ranged spells, but pretty much everything else fell flat for me. The actual races that we use from the elemental players companion, those worked really well. At no point did I think any of my the particular characters based on the race choice that we used were a problem at all. I will say the Aarakocra were almost a game changer. Like uh, we we were pretty close to winning, and then you brought them out, and it, that's what sort of helped bring things closer to a tie. Um, and that to me was a little scary. Uh, <laughs> that they were that good. Um, but Alex Basso, what did you like and not like about yeah, the battle system? I was going to jump on the dislike of Aarakocra Flyers. My God. Just to have them go right on the keep and rain arrows down on us, that was definitely, yeah. It went from a comfortable win to a, this is going to, this is going bad, guys. But what I, I guess overall, uh, I really, really didn't like the length of time between turns because, I mean, there was a lot going on. I know we all didn't know the rules 100%, but even then, there is so many stands, units to resolve that it just takes a while. Probably, I mean, what, we played for four hours? How many rounds do you think we actually went through? Eight, nine? Some of the longest combat. Uh, I mean, and I think overall the rules are, they're decent where they're at. Um, they need to be expanded. But as a as a group thing to do in my normal uh, D&D session i i think it would take too long i could see this as a fun thing to have like one-on-one battles with a friend with uh but i wouldn't really want it too much in my actual campaign Uh, i don't know about you guys the terrain uh, Mm um broke things up for me as the dm a lot in terms of you know providing different advantages like the the water rules and the high ground the with the air coker landing on the keep and getting the high ground which i thought you guys were going to use the beginning of the battle and you ended up not using those those terrain rules i really enjoyed playing around with yeah, yeah, I agree. The terrain rules, I think, are, are really well done and, uh, you know, and simple and easy to use and uh, that you can actually bring them into a regular D&D battle and have a great time with them as well. Rudy Basso likes dislikes of the mass combat rules and the elemental evil races. Uh, I liked the actual, like, it's fun on your turn to actually be moving multiple units and attacking with multiple units. But and Alex was totally right. The downtime in between your turn is extensive. I don't know, because I don't want to play in a small battle. I don't think that's fun. I don't think that's cinematic. But I do want to play more of these these kinds of rules. So I think one versus one or two versus two even would probably be probably be better. I think it works more as a war game than as a expansion to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, if I were a DM and I wanted a big climactic moment to finish the current, you know, campaign, I would recommend just have your PCs fight a dragon. Don't have them do a <laughs> battle like this because it's going to kill the atmosphere real fast because they're going to be bored. Allison Rossi, what about your likes and dislikes of the battle system brawl? 
So obviously I have a few things I like and dislike. The first thing I wanted to bring up though was I definitely do like that there's uh, different kinds of terrains and, and whatnot. I was a little sad though, like as as an Earth Ganazi, I had Earth Walk so I can move across difficult terrain made of Earth or Stone without expending any extra movement. So I was a little sad that never really came into play for me because I didn't have that issue where I was. I kind of stayed in the same place once I crossed the bridge and then, you know, died and things. Um, another thing is definitely initiative. Um, I guess it's hard to say if it's a like or dislike, but definitely as John experienced, if you roll really high for all of, all of your stuff, uh, you think it's good at first until you're getting wailed on and then all of your, your stands, uh, they die because you've already gone and you can't defend yourself now. Um, I also had issues with, you know, when something dies in the middle of, of a round, they don't really die until the end if they die. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of strange and it was hard to figure out, well, do you keep attacking them to make sure they're dead or what, you know, what do you do to make sure that they're taken off the battlefield? Um, it was also pretty long. Um, like was already mentioned, the turns, the turns are long. Um, I mean, I DM for seven PCs and, you know, as four of us playing it, the turns were just about as long as, as they take with me you know and in my sessions um and it's you know you don't want people to get bored so thankfully at least mass combat is not something you're going to see happening every single session um it definitely needs to be sped up a little bit though if everyone knows the rules or if everyone doesn't know the rules it can really change how long it takes and, and how bored people get waiting for something to happen um, in general, I like where it's going. Obviously, it's just a play test. There's a lot of changes that can be made, especially with, with player feedback. Um, so I like the direction it's going, and I like the fact that it's just an option to have mass combat rules in your game if you want to do a large-scale battle, but you don't want to figure out how to do it all yourself. So I like where it's going. has some downsides, but obviously they can be fixed because the rules aren't set in stone. Well, we want to know what you think. So find us at thetomeshow.com. You can leave us a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Tome Show. You can tweet at us. Please let us know what you think of the mass combat rules. What do you love? What do you not love? And what do you think of our opinions? Are we jerks? Are we not? You can probably tell us in a nice way, guys. Be nice. Be nice. All right? And uh, on that note, where can people find you, Rudy Basso? I'm probably a jerk for what it's worth. (laughs) Definitely. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. You can also listen to the podcast that Alex and I have called D&D VNG, which is on this very network. We talk about Dungeons & Dragons video games. Uh, Listen to the last one we recorded a few weeks ago about Forgotten Realms Demonstone. It's a game written by R.I. Salvatore. You get to play as Drist. Is it very good? Is it really, really, really bad? Uh, listen to find out. Uh, and be sure to listen to the next one we're playing an old school RPG. Hey, thanks. Bye. Uh, and uh, Alex Basso, where can people find you? you can check me out on the Twitter. Yep, underscore. Or no, 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 wait. At, at yo underscore Alex Basso. <laughs> I know a lot about Twitter. <laughs> I'm still good at selling myself. Talk about our YouTube channel. Oh, yes, and our YouTube channel that I update every now and then. But I'm starting to update more. Uh, which is Game O'Clock, where we put up videos about videos about video games. Pretty cool. Nice. Well, you should definitely check that out because I promise it is better than advertised. Allison Rossi, where can people <laughs> find you? 
<laughs> well, thankfully, I know where people can find me a little bit better. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Allison R underscore 91. So that's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-R underscore 91. Or you can find me and my group uh, Monday nights on Twitch. We play D&D 3.5e with a little bit of Pathfinder thrown in. We haven't been playing a lot lately, very sadly. Hopefully we're playing uh, more frequently this summer. So that's twitch.tv slash padfoot240. And that's where you can find us. Nice, nice. And John Fisher, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at, at the last Fisher, and I'm not a jerk, but you are all jerks, and I dare you to tell me otherwise. Uh, or not, whatever. Uh, but yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And people, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, or you can call the Tome Show's biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Rudy, Alex, Allison, and John. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup, and to Sam Dillon for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you are listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. It helps a bunch. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.